listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado... Our guest today is a biblical scholar, pastor, author, podcaster, and video producer, among other things. He's the founder and host of Darkward Brew, which has created and hosts more progressive-friendly Christian video resources than anyone else in the world. He's the newly settled pastor of First Congregational United Church of Christ in Portland, Oregon, and a leading articulator of Convergence Christianity, which we're going to get to in just a minute. It is my great honor to welcome to the podcast the Reverend Dr. Eric Elness. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Zach. The honor is mine. It is a rare treat to get to talk with another UCC pastor (laughs) on the podcast. (laughs) There are dozens of us out there. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Dozens and dozens. Yes, but something that I think our listeners might be less familiar with than even knowing a UCC pastor um, is that phrase that I brought up, convergence Christianity, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. I think is a term that they may not have heard, but a concept they have almost certainly felt or experienced in the world. So I wonder Mm -hmm. here at the beginning, because I know a lot of your work is colored by this concept and and all that goes with it. So could you just take a minute here and unpack that a little bit for our listeners? Sure, I can. And what what I'll say is kind of the tip of an iceberg. This goes way, way deep down the wormhole. (laughs) So if you want to go talk about like how this is, I see this acting in other, even other faiths um, and and beyond the little, you know, puddle of Christianity that we inhabit, I'm happy to talk about that. But really the whole idea of convergence came when I I and a bunch of uh, quote unquote progressive Christians, we walked across the country in 2006 to try to wave a flag saying that to, you know, helping people realize there are more than one way to be a Christian. And we had this platform called the Phoenix Affirmations, which Mm. eventually kind of became kind of a theological backbone for a lot of progressive Christian um, churches, Um, kind of 12 points of affirmation about why, what makes us excited to be, for our faith outlook, we weren't bashing anybody. We're just trying to articulate things like, you know, we take the Bible seriously, but we don't read it literally. Uh, We don't, uh, we we acknowledge that there are other paths besides Christianity that that are legitimate. Um, even though, as we claim our own path uh, as Christians, um, you know, things like this, uh, claiming environment, the environmental responsibility, uh, openness, and, and affirmation of LG, the LGBTQ community, things that you would would not surprise you to find about progressive uh, Christians. But we walked across the country thinking we were waving this banner and and we're going to kind of lead the charge, <laughs> or at least help 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 lead the charge. Uh, to a, a greater uh, Christian um, witness in America, um, but in more generous spirit. And what we discovered was um, almost immediately our our understandings of what was going on in our nation were, were completely wrong, <laughs> or at least or, or at least at least needed to be significantly rethought because we kept running um, up up. Uh, into two kinds of people. One were people on the other side of the theological swimming pool than we were, you know, more uh, evangelical uh, Christians who were as frustrated with their own camp as we were. <laughs> <laughs> and 
if you ask them, well, what are your hopes and dreams? They were looking for things like LGBTQ equality. They were looking for non-literal reading of the Bible. They're looking for not throwing everybody into hell who wasn't Christian. They're looking for the very things that progressive Christians stood for, really. Uh, but we also found um, from our own camp, progressive Christians who were having a huge problem with, with our camp as well. But they weren't looking for a more conservative Jesus, for instance. They were just looking for Jesus, where you know, so much of progressive Christianity has basically said, uh, and I you know, very much count myself as a progressive Christian, but we, so much of progressive Christianity has said, whatever we think that the evangelicals or fundamentalists do badly, we won't do at all. <laughs> so they do Jesus badly, we don't do Jesus. If they do Bible badly, well, well, we'll not do the Bible. You know, if they do prayer badly, we're not going to talk about prayer. You know, all these things. And there, and there are people who are frustrated by that. It's like, I don't want a conservative Jesus. I don't want conservative prayer, but I want those things. I want these classic things, you know. And so, and the, but and so, but we listen to those you know, those what I would call po- people who are moving to be post-evangelical progressives, and people who are becoming you know post-liberal <laughs> progressives. Hmm. And so, what they were looking for was actually found in the other side. So, like those those former evangelicals or becoming former evangelicals still had Jesus. And Bible and prayer. Only they had they themselves had moved beyond the conservative, you know, uh, layering of of that. So they actually had a gift to bear to these post liberal progressives, and the post liberal progressives had gifts to bear for the post evangelical progressives because they they were doing things like LGBTQ equality and and you know pluralism and all these things. And we realized that you know both camps they've grown up to be suspicious of one another, and both camps have no idea that the other camp exists. And so every year we asked ourselves, you know, have they found each other yet? Because we knew that if they'd ever f- find each other, they would there'd just be like this heyday. It's like, oh, my gosh, you got your chocolate, my peanut butter. I got my peanut butter, your chocolate. You know, it's like, wow, this is amazing. You know, uh, So true. Yeah, yeah. It, it really felt like 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 there were two groups of escaped slaves out in the wilderness that Moses, you know, was trying to you know, wrangle together. And if they'd ever get together, they would just like drop everything. The gifts they would that they brought out of Egypt that they could not bear to leave behind. They were the gifts that each other needed and they could build a new tabernacle in the wilderness based on those gifts that come together this convergence and so every year we asked ourselves did that have they noticed each other and every year we had to say no honestly we'd like to say yes but we no. until this little festival happened in what year was that about 20 um about 2013 2012 Mm -hmm. uh in in um in north carolina called the wild goose festival and those people, they just simply raised a flag saying, are you into spirituality, justice, and the arts? If you are, come. And what, who, the people who came were the exact people from those uh, the post-progressive, you know, uh, post-liberal progressives and post, uh, post-evangelical progressives. They, they, they just came. They, they just came and they showed up and they discovered one another. And oh, what a party that was when they discovered one. They're like, what? Wait, you're coming from an evangelical church and you're talking this way? What? You're coming from a you know, liberal church you're talking this way? He's like, what? 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 This is so cool. You know? And even the performers, yeah. too, and, and the speakers. Seeing Jennifer Knapp up there, that was, yeah. that was something special. Oh, she's awesome. Yeah, exactly. So it, and every year it just it's just built until finally um, other organizations started realizing this and um, – and I helped, uh, you know, Cameron Trimble and, and Brian McLaren, we you know, put together something called the Convergence Network just to try to make use of, you know, to kind of bring that energy together. And eventually um, other organizations started to see this happening. Uh, San Francisco Theological Seminary, you saw, saw it going on and made 
the Phoenix Affirmations, a primary working document uh, for their cutting edge uh, ministry um, unit and um, and Random House even, even Random House. <laughs> uh, uh, they, they'd actually been reading stuff that was on the Dartmouth Brew Reps website, said, you know what? Our marketing people have been reading what you've been writing and they're saying, this is exactly what we're seeing too in our stats. And like, really? It was, yeah, yeah. What do you think's going on? I said, well, I think it might be called Convergence, you know, and guess what they named their press? <laughs> Convergence uh, Press. <laughs> I hope you got a cut of that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I didn't get a cut of anything. No, no. But but the, the point is, is, uh, is, is really that there is something going on that, that is statistically valid. But under the Trump era, it's, it just kind of went all underground and seemed like we took many steps backward. But I actually don't think we have. Um, in, in my reading of U.S. history, you know, as we we're kind of talking about before the podcast began, um, if you really take a serious look at it, um, developments at the grassroots in religion tend to precede political developments by about 20 or 30 years. You think it's the opposite because you look back and look at social developments that were held up by religion. But it really wasn't until the average Christian or person of faith kind of saw a new thing that suddenly there's a tidal wave change and it works out it works its way out politically. And that happens with the abolitionist movement, with women's suffrage, with with uh, a welcoming uh, divorcees into the light, the mainstream life of society, with racial justice, um, all these uh, LGBTQ equality. Even um, I thought was going to be the one exception to that, but but even then, you could argue that it wasn't until the average even evangelical really kind of saw, wait a minute, maybe God isn't condemning all these people to hell. That suddenly there was this, this massive sheer point, and we're still not there. You know, we're not still where we need to be, but there was a massive sheer point. And the, the reason why the Trump uh, kind of era even happened is because some of these developments have sunk so deep into the fabric of human society now um, uh, uh, that, that the old dominion is reacting and it's fighting for its life. There's so many developments that have happened to bring us together in this, in, in not just religious convergences. I mean, convergence of faith and science, convergence of, you know, all, all you know, of different of religions, even and not not like a super religion. But I mean, religions mm-hmm. um, recognize the value of each other's past and the, the diversity of, of, of faith paths actually makes us stronger rather than weaker. There's all kinds of convergences going on right now that are leading to, I think, to some change is so profound that literally I I mean I'm willing to put it on on on, on tape I <laughs> you know years from now I think we'll look back and say what's happening now is as significant as Jesus's own you know coming uh, 2,000 years ago we're we're in a deep shift that you know Phyllis Tickle talks about 500 year shifts that I think is just absolutely right on you know, where the tectonic shifts in society um, they they happen it's at least in Western monotheistic society, which was the subject of her study, it tends to have a tectonic shift about every 500 years that then is followed by a season of like extreme argumentation and violence <laughs> and until, <laughs> and, until, until a new normal sets in. And I think that, you know, so the last time this happened was, you know, the Renaissance then leading to the Reformation, the big fight over what's real and what, what, where is authority, you know. And what happened in the last century in, in Western civilization, and really could argue throughout the world, but I'm just going to keep it to my area of expertise too, um, it makes the Renaissance look like child's play. Mm. I mean, literally it makes the, the Renaissance look like child's play. I mean, in 1900, the first patent on record in the U.S. Po- uh, patent office in New York City was for a paper clip. And we ended the century literally cloning sheep. <laughs> I mean, seriously. 
And, 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 and you know, of course, you think about your science, all the science, you would just geek out all day long about the scientific um, revolution that took place in that century. But that's it was way beyond just the scientific. I mean, in 1900, there were 200 countries that, that legalized, had legalized slavery or forced labor in some kind. By 2017, that number was three. You know, uh, in 1900, 40% of all children died by the time they were five years old. And now 4% uh, uh, child mortality. Um, in 1900, 200 countries had the death penalty, you know, and now there are under 90. In 1900, you know, only women had the right to vote in just one country in the entire world. Wow. You know, and, yeah, and now the, the number is about 200 uh, countries. And, and that's not even counting, like in 19, 1851, we were dating the first woman, you know, and that's just been, you know, had a revolution, you know, yeah. since, you know, look at the history of, of the world, you know, that's just, you know, it's you know, crazy the amount of progress we've made. Um, you know, so, I mean, you just go on and on and on about this. Um, adult literacy in 1900 was 20% of the planet. Now it's 90% of the planet. You know, or 1900, those who lived in a democracy accounted for 15% of the planet population. Now it's about 60% of the planet. And we've just been talking about LGBTQ equality too. I mean, think about the revolution that's happened. There are all these amazing the convergences. Past 10 years. Yeah, yeah. All these amazing convergences and um, and all those those social changes did not happen in a vacuum. They they are real people who made them happen. People who gave a, gave a, a hoot about about the world. You know, just the fact you know, like Nicholas Kripsov, he writes that article every year except for like last year. He writes it why. 2019 was the best year in human history. Why 2018, 2017, 2016? Mm. You know, the stats he brings out are just amazing. Like in the last decade, about 200,000 people per day emerged from extreme poverty. Mm. 200,000 people per day. 300,000 people, over 300,000 per day gained access to electricity. Hmm. 300,000 per day gained access to clean drinking water. This is year after year per day. You know, in just 1919 alone, 650,000 people per day gained access to the internet. You know, so you're, you know, the, the Renaissance looks nothing compared to this kind of revolution we are experiencing. And, and so it also you know, tells us like, okay, there's, the tectonic shift is bigger, way bigger than the 500 year mark. I think, yeah. I think, we're, we, I think it's bigger than a thousand year mark. I think it's, it, it, we're at about a 2000 year um, kind of tectonic plate shift which is also why we're in so much danger right now, because every time the tectonic plates shift, then the whole nature of authority and what's real just goes out the window. And then there's a free for, there's a free for all until there's a new consensus. You know, the only problem is, is now that we've democratized the instruments of mass destruction and get increasingly artful of the ways of killing each other every day. Um, and now we got global climate change. Also, we got these twin threats. Human, the human civilization has never experienced such an existential threat to its existence in all of human history as well. So you somehow we've got to jump the track of human history. We've got to do what history doesn't expect hmm. in order to survive this kind of threshold in a time. Um, so it's, 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 it's good news and, and kind of terrifying news. But to me, 
And I kind of go back and forth from year to year, which I think is, you know, which which one is going to win out? You know, are we going to actually survive this or are we going to is it you know, are we truly kind of in this doomsday kind of like a civilizational collapse? Um, I, I tend to side with the former um, more than the latter um, these days and and have for the last few years actually been um, kind of went out of a deep funk about where this was headed and think that actually we are building the capability to jump this track, um, not without pain, not without a certain amount of violence, to be sure. Um, probably our, it's going to get a little harder before it gets better. But um, I think the pandemic actually has really provoked a lot of, uh, of um, is, you know, as terrible and, and tragic as it's been. And, you know, I don't know hardly anybody who has not been touched in some significant way or had significant deaths occur or you know, job loss and so forth. Some of the um, the flexibility, you know, it's, it's almost like been it's it's low. It's been like a you know in Oregon they have the, what's known as well on any coast they have what's known as a king tide. It's, the, it's when the the tides go way out, you know, and then and then any rocks that were under the water, you know, close to shore that might be a danger to the boats, you know, are totally exposed. If now if you knew what you're doing, you knew those rocks were there all the time, but. But king time goes out. And it doesn't matter how much experience you have with the waters. You know, you see the rocks, and it seems like the pandemic has lowered the tide. To, so we see the rocks that have been there for a long time that we should have dealt with a long time ago, um, that we haven't. You know, ra- racial you know, justice obviously you know you really showed us how how far behind we still are. You know, and and with respect to health, providing health care for all people. How about a living wage? We call these people frontline workers, and yet we pay them you know, less than a living wage. Seriously, you know, all these 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 rocks underneath the water that have been really you know, sinking a lot of boats <laughs> for mm. so long. Now we're you know, all of society. If you have even your eyes halfway open, you're seeing these things. You know, it's no wonder that that Biden's suggesting this massive. You know, all these massive reforms that cost trillions of dollars. It's like we finally have the political will to actually say, you know what, we better do something about this while we still have the ability to do something about this. It's like, wow. I love your spirit. (laughs) I love the (laughs) optimism in your voice. And this podcast typically typically goes somewhere in between the world is ending on Tuesday and the (laughs) rainbows and unicorns are coming on Wednesday. We're we're somewhere in between there, depending on who's on the show at the time. So there we um, go. I'm I'm uh, I'm loving this energy. I'm feeding off of it. We're kind of <laughs> hopefully coming over a crest in the United States uh, in COVID. I mean, obviously, we look at the rest of the world and we are nowhere near through this thing. But no. we're starting to feel a little bit better here. I know that uh, some of our educational institutions are starting to go back to something that looks like normal. Our churches and places mm-hmm. of worship or lots of them are starting to go back to something that looks like normal. You've talked to me a little bit off the podcast about how you're not sure you want to go back to normal. Right. Um, that there are some things that happened during this COVID time that they've really stuck that really Mm -hmm. exposed something that needed to be exposed. And whether it's through technology or just rediscovering some of the essentials, um, Mm -hmm. what do you see? What, what has been made manifest that's good about this COVID time that you're going to keep moving forward in this new church you're a part of? Sure. I'd be happy to talk about that. Can I preface that with a quote uh, by one of my favorite authors, Aaron Dottie Roy, who wrote the, Mm -hmm. the God of small things. This is just rocking my world. And it really feeds into what you're, you're asking about. Um, she wrote something about the pandemic and she wrote this way. She said, what is this thing that has happened to us? It's a virus. Yes. 
in and of itself, it holds no moral brief, but it is definitely more than a virus. It has made the mighty kneel and brought the world to a halt like nothing else could. Our minds are still racing back and forth, longing for a return to, quote, normality, trying to stitch our future to our past and refusing to acknowledge the rupture. But the rupture exists. And in the midst of this terrible despair, it offers us a chance to rethink the doomsday machine we have built for ourselves. It offers us a chance to rethink the doomsday machine we have built for ourselves. Nothing could be worse than to return to normality. Historically, pandemics have forced human be humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data bank banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. Ooh. Oh, man. Oh, that'll preach. Oh boy! Wow. I, I, I've actually been using that quote like like I've quoted it like five times in the last eight weeks at my church. Let's <laughs> say that that author one more time for our listeners. Now, oh, Erin Dottie Roy. She wrote the the God of Small Things is one of one of many great books she's written. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Indian author. Yeah, and, and so yeah, I really uh, one of the. the <laughs> One of the great awakenings that I, personal awakenings I had in the pandemic was the glory of doing nothing. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <laughs> nothing productive anyway, you know. Uh, I, when, when the pandemic started, I was uh, like the second person in all of Omaha or Nebraska. I can't remember uh, uh, the habit. I, it was a, a, a souvenir I brought back from Spain before the Spain was on the hot list. And my congregation had just coincidentally had made this. We had uh, taken a little money uh, to uh, to grow our, our church. We were on the Tri-Faith Commons where a, a synagogue and a mosque and my church is all co-located. I mean, this is my Omaha church to move beyond interfaith dialogue into interfaith community. It's just a super heady thing, you know, and um, and we had taken some money to, to then you know, get the word out. Hey, we're here. We're open. Come. And then suddenly the pandemic hits and, well, how are we going to grow the church if we have no, we can't, can't even open our doors? And so we decided to, to use that money to buy time on television to broadcast our um, then electronic worship. And, um, and so for the first time in my 25 years of ministry at the time, um, I you know, literally had all my Sunday work was done by Friday at three because I had to have the worship stuff to the television station. So Sunday morning, my only commitment was literally to roll out of bed a little late, having slept in, make some <laughs> sourdough pancakes for the family, turn on worship and watch it and just be available to chat and then have the afternoon free and, and, and easy with my family or friends or if, well, not so much friends in the pandemic, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> uh, and I realized, you know, I've been a Sabbath follower very a diligent one for all of my adult life. But once I got into ministry, my Sabbath became uh, Mondays because you work on Sunday. And so um, my wife was working, my friends were all at work, my kids were in school. So I took Sabbath alone. But suddenly I was taking Sabbath like back in like where I was in seminary, where it's like I was with my family. It's like, this is like, oh, I forgot about this. This is this is how it's meant to be. You're supposed to just have fun. And you know, it's the play and pray and recreate and 
procreate if you care to, you know, just that's what you should be doing on the Sabbath, you know, and um, um, and you know, it really for the progressive you know, community, the, which I'm a part of, we get so fixated on healing the hurts of the world, what's wrong with the world, all the things that are broken with the world, that we're just always dogging that all day long, every day we're out there striving for social justice and to, to, to make the world a better place. But we've forgotten that there needs to be at least one day where you fall back in love with the world and you celebrate what's right with the world. And you don't do a freaking thing that to, to help anything <laughs> other than just receive you receive the world that day rather than try to change the world. And I started realizing, you know, there's a reason why of the 10 most important thing God says the entire Bible, known as the Ten Commandments, keep the Sabbath holy is in there. Just a few breaths away even from do not murder. I mean, mm. that's the level of importance that's placed on the Sabbath. And I realized that in, in my own community, we, we are so activist and we get so angry about all of the, the things that are broken that we, we soon, there's no joy in us anymore. There, and we're only, and then nothing, nothing is ever good enough. And we even begin to resent God or even doubt God, could he possibly exist because there's just so much broken. And it's like, if that's really your attitude, you really do need to check that. You really do need to stop working for a day, go for a long walk in the forest or sit beside a, a river for a day, you know, get out on the lake or do something out in nature just to remind yourself of just how magnificent this world is as well as broken up and messed up and, and stuff. But you got to connect to it once, at least once a week, just to you remember what you're fighting for, you know? And so, yeah, post pandemic, I realized I want nothing to do with a church that supports everybody just working their tail off seven days a week. And, or and always being resentful about what's what's broken. I, I don't want to turn away from that. I mean, six days a week, we should be about that. <laughs> we should be working at, at social justice and, and, and changing that hurts. But maybe my biggest responsibility as a minister is to help teach my own congregation how to do nothing at all. Mm. <laughs> you know, that, that's my biggest, my biggest responsibility on a Sunday is to actually help people understand you have a day, not just to come to church for an hour, you know, and, and, and call your spirituality done for the week. And, and for heaven's sakes, don't come to church to do more work, you know, uh, but take a take a day, take some deep breaths, you know. And if you could find God in the mountains, you know, better than you can find uh, God in church. Well, we're, maybe we ought to change church mm. to allow for that, you know. So one of the proposals you're talking about changes post pandemic, one of the proposals mm. is literally before my congregation here in Portland is that even when it's okay to get back together again, we are going to get back uh, together on the second Sunday of the month. But every other Sunday, God bless if you want to go out in the mountains, do that thing, or, but we'll, we'll offer Zoom worship. We'll do electronic worship. And, and if you want help you know, be more intentional about finding God in the mountains, we'll provide you some helps you know, there too. But you know, So go anywhere you want on Sunday, but make sure your butt's in the pew on the second Sunday. Because we're really going to have a good time of it. And I mean, we are going to pull out all the stops. That's we have special programming, special worship. The choir will be rehearsing all month long for this this one Sunday. And we're going to have a potluck afterwards, by the way, that's going to make you know the most foodie person just salivate. You know, we're going to invite people to bring their best stuff 
not pull through KFC on the way in, pick up a bucket, you know, but unless you're a bad cook, then please come through KFC and do that. But, <laughs> but, but if you have, if you can bring a lot of food, because we want not just to share it with others, but we have a lot of people who are homeless. We're right down center city in Portland, um, right downtown. We've got tons of homeless people all around. So once they find out there's a free meal, they're going to want to come too. And we're only going to invite them and say, hey, come back next month and invite your friends too. So we want to have enough to send the homeless out with food as well. And maybe actually start some relationships over you know, table fellowship with people too. But uh, so that's, you know, that, so that we actually help our, car- our whole congregation experience Sabbath. I mean, some of our youngest families actually are some of the greatest supporters of this idea in our congregation. They're like, oh my God. Because for us, it's like a heck of a lot of work to go to church. You know, like we got three kids that are all complaining. They're all the, they want different things. All you got to get them dressed, all this. And then you got to go. And, you know, you start to fall out of the habit. And once you fall out of the habit, it's really hard to get back into the habit. But it's like you're talking about once a month. Well, we could commit to that. Hmm. You know, and our, and our young families are coming to worship more than they ever have because they can turn on Zoom, you know, on Sunday mornings, too. And the average congregation, not just young family, but the average parishioner in my parish, they live 30 to 40 minutes from our downtown church. And so they're, they've actually been getting to know each other better during the pandemic than they have in years and years because they're able to meet on Zoom. They're able to, and after, after worship, we have breakout rooms. They get into breakout rooms. They talk about real stuff instead of just like what the weather is and how good the tea is <laughs> in fellowship hour. <laughs> they're actually having real conversations with each other every week and thriving when they get to know each other, you know? So, um, it's interesting. Who knows? You know, two months from now, you you know, can have me back on. I'll be saying, "Oh yeah, that went disastrously. You know, they they, they rejected that, whatever." But um, <laughs> uh, but but the, literally, the, the pandemic has allowed uh, even that thought to to be mm. seriously discussed. Um, so you uh, something you said really stood out to me that. Um, taking taking that day to fall back in love with the world, mm. so that you're better equipped to then go yeah. go out and save it, like Absolutely. the progressive superheroes that we all think we are. <laughs> we uh, think we are. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Emphasis on the word "think we are." <laughs> uh, there you go. So it it occurs to me that that is more than anything the value that science has given me personally. Mm. Um, I'm thinking back to a conversation we had uh, at the beginning of the pandemic with Dr. Scott Sampson, who was on the mm-hmm. podcast before, and he was talking about uh, inspiring uh, the love of the world into children so that those children mm-hmm. then grow up to care about the world. Yes. And then, right, the environmental movement has to begin with loving the world and being, yes. uh, you know, uh, being curious about yes. it. And so for me, that's a lot of my link between my love of science, my love of God, my love of world, my love yeah. of people. Um, it's it's in that. Um, yeah. Sinai and Synapses is a fellowship um, elevating the discourse between science and religion. And so yes. typically the, the fellows have some foot in in both, though one yes. foot more heavily in one than the other. Uh, where's your connection to the world of science? Um, where, where do you see yourself plugging in? And Yeah. Well, I, I <laughs> before I became a, a, a had any notion of being a minister, I thought I was going to be a solar energy research scientist. So I've always had uh, science has been you know very much in my blood. And of course, we've been talking about science this whole time, but really more, more like social science. You know, the ways uh, you know, whole movements of people act over you know over, over time. But I can totally geek out on uh, you know quantum physics. <laughs> 
yeah. uh, astrophysics, you know, th- those kind of things too. And the climate change thing is a, is a really, really high importance uh, piece of scientific, uh, scientific interest for me right now and sociological mm-hmm. uh, interest. I think, you know, we, we are in great danger um, right now if we don't pay attention to the science on this. And, and it's actually part of my enthusiasm for trying to reclaim Sabbath um, actually feeds very much directly into what I believe the science is telling us about, you know, climate change, that, that mm-hmm. one of the best things we can do actually is actively train ourselves to disengage with a materialistic, utilitarian, consumeristic society, that we di- that we unplug from the, the, the fantasy that we need to keep consuming every day of the week, uh, you know, in order to, to be happy, that we can actually unplug from that system, unplug from the advertising, unplug from uh, all of the, um, you know, the, the our society gives us so many things to do all week long to keep us distracted from what's important. And if it, the pandemic has taught us anything, it's like once you st- slow down from your 65 mile an hour lifestyle to a three mile an hour lifestyle, like a walking pace, you notice stuff that you never noticed before. And we need to we need to not just make that a pandemic reality. We need to make that a weekly reality to notice stuff. <laughs> Mm. And and to get involved then on those ex, those six days a week to say, you know what, the Sabbath day actually is more real than any of these other days. And I want to bring that mentality into the rest of the week as well, that we're going to unplug from all this rampant consumerism. We're going to unplug from this overscheduling of our children and ourselves. You know, we're going to unplug from treating people as commodities, <laughs> And, uh, you know, and, and, and basically stealing money from their pockets so that we can enrich ourselves by p- not paying people a living wage and things like this. Uh, so to me, the Sabbath actually and the science and climate change, all these things in social justice, they all kind of converge, you know, in, in that way. There's, there's more than one kind of convergence um, going on. But I think what, you know, but if you want you know, more the, the harder science stuff, you know, for this podcast, I think that you know one of the most intriguing concepts that I've heard in recent years is that whole we had happened when the Higgs boson uh, you know, uh, field was was proven. Then that 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 energy precedes matter. That it absolutely does. You know, to me, that was just a, a real sea change. Uh, you know, and, and an important watershed moment, at least in my own uh, life, because you know if you were to then take the totally non-scientific, uh, unprovable assumption that that energy is love uh, that precedes matter. Now suddenly you're looking back at those people known as Celtic Christians that, that exist and flowered for so many centuries that until they were finally put down by the, the Roman church, um, uh, their whole notion that, that, that this entire plane of existence we're on it, all of the, the created world is literally the incarnation of God's love. Uh, it is literally like if you want to know what God's love looks like, tastes like, feels like, smells like, go take a walk in the forest, go get on the lake, go next to, you know, get out in nature and that and you'll see it. You'll smell God's love. You'll hear God's love. You'll feel it. <laughs> this is what it looks like. It's it's in, it's the incarnation of love. And that feeds then back into my scientific, the scientific piece, like why every Christian should be like madly in love with science, uh, because science in looking at the nat- the created world is really dissecting the way love works, you know, uh, the way love operates. Um, 
and and challenges some of our notions of love, you know, too. Um, you know, you can use a piece of steel to um, make a surgical scalpel to heal somebody or to make a, a knife that will stab somebody, you know, but it's both using something that is theoretically then a create an incarnation of love, right? You know, so what does that say? It doesn't say that stabbing somebody is loving. It means that, that love has an incredible vulnerability to it that, that can actually release its own need for control of you hmm. uh, because um, for its own reasons. And love has its own its reasons. Um, but that you, you run into, you, then you start to reconceive your notions of God even, that God is so um, gentle hmm. with us. You know, it's not the God of... Of wrath that you know, God, you get out of line and you know one millimeter, and suddenly like you know there's fire and brimstone coming at you. But a God that is actually gentle enough to do what Jesus says God does, which is you know the sun. God makes God's sun shine on the on the righteous and the wicked, you know, and the rain to fall. That actually we are the every person is so utterly blessed by this creation, and and there's no morality um, uh, test given to give you these blessings. As the Talmud says, the Talmud you know, talks about how you know, even a stolen seed bears fruit. Hmm. Like literally you can steal seeds, like something that's totally immoral, and yet those seeds are still gonna grow if you plant them in the ground. You know, there's, there's, there's a vulnerability to love um, that is just absolutely astonishing. And I think we could all learn, you know, all learn from. We keep thinking we can only give good gifts to people if they deserve it. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> you know, right, you know, and if they're at least a little like, and by, and by deserve, I mean they're a little bit like us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least a little bit like us. Or if they're broken, you know. they're at least broken in the same ways. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, but that doesn't seem to be uh, on the agenda of of the, of the sacred order of things, and um, hmm. you know, and maybe Jesus was right and not just naive when he said. You know, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who persecute you, all those things that we just think, you know, like we give lip service to. And when we think, but when push comes to shove, we think, well, he's just a naive idealist. Well, now that we've democratized the instance of mass destruction, you know, is he such a idealist or is he a realist? You know, we need to get about that, that vulnerability, that robust vulnerability that is willing to gift people who even we, um, we made, uh, who make us profoundly uncomfortable. And keep gifting them, and keep uh, loving, um, and and out love our enemies, um, because this whole world is the incarnation of of love. Energy precedes matter, and uh, we we then end up flowing with the material and the spiritual order of things. Uh, so, here uh, as we as we near the end of our time together, um, you have created. Um, dozens of of videos, probably hundreds of sermons, um, maybe thousands of sermons at this point. Um, dozens of podcasts, four books, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you've walked across the country. You've uh, shared at events. You have a lot of important things to say, but. I am asking every fellow the same question at the end, which I think is probably harder for someone who has a lot to say to answer. But just if you, uh, what is one thing, one thing 
that you wish that everyone knew about the world? Hmm. That the world is an incarnation of a love that loves you personally, personally, beyond your wildest imagination. That everything in this world is oriented uh, toward you, your neighbor, and also other creations in the non-human world as well. But it exists in a state that is created out of love. And when you begin to treat it that way, you start to see it that, you start to see that much more clearly. And the more you pay attention to that reality, the more that reality reveals itself to you. And you don't have to believe in God, I don't think, to, even to benefit from that, that, that orientation. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a, there's no necessity there. Just you pay attention and you start to treat it as if it is, it is uh, a love uh, that is, you know, I think nature has consciousness. Um, it's not our consciousness. But if nature is truly an incarnation of love, then love is a relational thing. It's not, you can't say, I have 12 ounces of love. Right. And so all of all of creation is inherently relational. We know that if you take humans out, it's inherently relationship. Right. So add us back in the equation. We're inherently in relationship, too. And you start to flow with that love. You, you start to flow with creation when you flow with love. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for that. Thank you for uh, this past 45 minutes or so of, of conversation. Uh, if our listeners are interested in hearing more about what you have to say, um, they can check out any of your books. I actually just purchased uh, Gifts of the Dark Wood, Seven Blessings ah. for Soulful Skeptics and Other Wanderers. Um, I Just the description yeah. alone felt like, hey, he wrote a book for me. That's great. Uh, yeah. You can also check out darkwoodbrew.org darkwoodbrew.org to check out the, the videos that they're produced and there's some more links and information about how to find the podcast and um, all kinds of other things that you're doing. Is there anything else that you would like to let folks know about? How they can find you? or I think you've done a great job already. <laughs> That's okay. probably more, more than they need to know about me. <laughs> <laughs> so no address or cell phone number? Or anything. <laughs> yeah. No, but, but if you're ever in Portland, First Congregational United Church of Christ, come and, come and um, well, we, or at least get online. You, we're not yes. meeting physically now. But, Maybe yeah. the second Sunday if you're there. There we go. Come to the second Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> Bring some KFC and have a good time. <laughs> there <Yes>. we go. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Thank you, Zach. It's been a pleasure.